Good morning and welcome to the reading of the Mason City Globe Gazette for today, March the 9th. I'm your reader, Ben Stein. We'll begin today with the uh, hot off the wire. Senate GOP leader Mitch McConnell hospitalized after fall. Spokesman for Senate Republican leader Mitch McConnell says the senator has been hospitalized after tripping and falling at a hotel. Spokesman Doug Andre says the 81-year-old Kentucky Republican was attending a private dinner at a Washington hotel Wednesday when he tripped. Andre says McConnell was admitted for treatment. In 2019, the GOP leader tripped and fell at his home in Kentucky and suffered a shoulder fracture. It's unclear if McConnell will be out Thursday and if that would have an effect on scheduled votes in the Senate. The average age in the Senate is 65. The Senate has been without several members recently due to illness. Russian Russian missile barrage slams into cities across Ukraine. Russia launched a massive barrage of missiles and drones that hit residential buildings and critical infrastructure across Ukraine. The attacks Thursday killed six people, left hundreds of thousands without heat or electricity, and knocked a nuclear plant off the power grid for hours. It was the largest such attack in three weeks. Air raid sirens wailed through the night as the attacks targeted a wide swath of the country. The Russian Defense Ministry said the strikes were in retaliation for a recent incursion into the Bryansk region of western Russia by what Moscow claimed were Ukrainian saboteurs. Ukraine denied the claim and warned that Moscow could use the allegations to justify stepping up its own assaults. China's Xi calls for more quickly elevating armed forces. China's leader Xi Jinping has called for more quickly elevating the armed forces to world-class standards. That came in a speech to military delegates to the ceremonial parliament just days after uh, a top diplomat warned of the growing possibility of conflict between the sides if the U.S. did not change course. The program laid out by Xi dovetails with a number of national strategies already underway, including the Made in China 2025 campaign to make China dominant in 10 key fields and a decades-old campaign for civilian military integration in the economy. A State Department spokesperson responded that Washington wants to coexist responsibly within the global trade and political system and has no intention of suppressing China. President Joe Biden is ready to unveil his proposal, his proposed federal budget, his opening offer in a high-stakes debate about federal finances. He's proposing to cut deficits by nearly $3 trillion over the next decade. It's part of a broader attempt by the president to call out House Republicans who are demanding severe cuts to the federal spending in return for increasing the government's legal borrowing authority. Biden will unveil his budget plan Thursday afternoon in Philadelphia. He wants to impose tax hikes on the wealthy to limit federal borrowing and to expand Medicare, the government health insurance program for adults over 65. Active service members and veterans have provided firsthand testimony in the House of Representatives about the chaotic U.S. withdrawal from Afghanistan, describing in harrowing detail the carnage and death they witnessed on the ground. The initial hearing Wednesday of a long-promised investigation by House Republicans displayed the open wounds from the end of America's longest war in August 2021, with witnesses recalling how they saw mothers carrying dead babies and the Taliban shooting and brutally beating people. Testimony focused not on the decision to withdraw, but on what witnesses depicted as a desperate attempt to rescue American citizens and Afghan allies 
with little planning and inadequate support. They implored Congress to help allies left behind. Thousands of pages of documents in a recent lawsuit show that Fox News' top executives sometimes were actively involved in politics rather than simply reporting or offering opinions on it. The documents were released as part of a libel lawsuit that voting machine company Dominion Voting Systems has filed against Fox over its airing of disproven allegations that the firm took part in a vast conspiracy to steal the 2020 presidential election. Fox has defended its behavior as standard reporting on a newsworthy story, but the documents show how Fox's founder, <coughs> excuse me, Rupert Murdoch, suggested his staff intervene in Republican Party primaries and even assisted President Donald Trump's re-election campaign. Norfolk Southern's CEO is apologizing to Congress and pledging millions of dollars to help East Palestine, Ohio, recover from last month's fiery train derailment. Senators are investigating railway safety and the Biden administration's response to the disaster. In remarks prepared for Thursday's hearing, CEO Alan Shaw says he is deeply sorry for the impact of the derailment. He says the railroad will do the right thing and commit $20 million to the response and voluntary safety upgrades, but a bipartisan group of senators wants to impose new regulations on railroads. From demands for constitutional rights in Islamabad to calls for economic parity in Manila, Paris, and Madrid, International Women's Day demonstrations are highlighting the unfinished work of providing equity for half of the planet's population. While activists in some places celebrated political and legal advances, observances also pointed to repression in countries such as Afghanistan and Iran, as well as the large number of women and girls who experienced sexual assaults and domestic violence. United Nations Secretary General Antonio Guterres said this week that progress won over decades in vanishing is vanishing because the patriarchy is fighting back. The frantic effort to rescue four Americans taken captive by a cartel in Mexico during a kidnapping that left two dead came after a fifth person who traveled with the group to Texas called police there. Cheryl Orange told the Associated Press she contacted police in Brownsville, Texas, after her friends crossed the border Friday to drop off one of their companions who was planning to get cosmetic surgery. Orange said she was awaiting a call from a friend who survived the attack and could not provide more details. A police report filed by Orange gives the most detailed account of what led to the kidnapping that saw the surviving Americans whisked back to a U.S. hospital Tuesday. Israeli leaders say the award-winning Israeli actor known for portraying Tevya in Fiddler on the Roof has died in Tel Aviv. Chaim Topol's death at 87 was confirmed Thursday by Israeli opposition leader Yair Lapid and other leaders who tweeted their condolences to Topol's family. Lapid said Topol taught Israel love of culture and love of the land. A recipient of two Golden Globe Awards and nominee for both an Academy Award and a Tony Award, Topol Long has ranked among Israel's most decorated actors. More recently, in 2015, he was celebrated for his contributions to film and culture with the Israel Prize for Lifetime Achievement, his country's most prestigious honor. Tiger Woods' girlfriend wants to nullify a non-disclosure agreement following a six-year relationship with a professional golfer. Court records show that Erica Herman filed a complaint seeking declaratory judgment on Monday in Martin County, Florida. The couple had been living together in the area just north of Palm Beach County, 
Woods and Herman haven't publicly announced the end of the relationship, which began in 2017. According to the complaint, a trust controlled by Woods is attempting to silence Herman with a non-disclosure agreement she signed while working as an employee of Woods. The complaint argues that the NDA should be nullified under a federal law that prohibits an NDA from being enforced when sexual assault or sexual harassment is involved. Jim Beheim's 47-year tenure as coach at Syracuse ended Wednesday with the university saying Orange assistant Adrian Autry has been promoted into the job. The move came less than three hours after Syracuse lost to Wake Forest in the Atlantic Coast Conference Tournament, after which Beheim hinted at retirement but said it would ultimately be the university's decision. With that, we'll move now into some more local news. Native Iowans school choice advocate picked to lead state education department. This from Tom Barton of the Globe Gazette Des Moines Bureau. Iowa Governor Kim Reynolds has named her new head of the state education department, Chad Aldis, an Iowa native with degrees in economics and law and experience working for multiple charter school and private school choice think tanks. Aldis succeeds Anne Lebo, who announced last month she is stepping down from Iowa's Department of Education which sets standards for K-12 schools and oversees the state's community colleges to pursue other opportunities. Lebo leaves the department shortly after Republican state lawmakers and Governor Reynolds approved a new $345 million private school financial aid package and with dozens of public education-related bills swirling through the Iowa legislature. Aldous's appointment is effective March 15th, according to the governor's office. Lebo was paid an annual salary of $154,300 last fiscal year, according to online records. The department provides oversight to the state education system that includes public elementary and secondary schools, state-accredited non-public schools, area education agencies, community college, and teacher preparation programs. The department employs about 220 people. Chad is the type of leader we need at this pivotal time for Iowa's education system, Reynolds said in a statement. His unique perspective will help lead reform within the department and across our schools so that every Iowa student, regardless of what school they attend, receives a quality education that prepares them to be successful in life. Aldous is a native of Comanche and a Clinton High School graduate who also attended the University of Northern Iowa before earning an economics degree from the University of Mississippi. He serves as vice president for Ohio policy at the Thomas B. Fordham Institute, where he began working in 2013. He has provided testimony and worked with the state's governor, lawmakers, and state education officials on school funding, charter school accountability, graduation requirements, and private school choice, according to his biography on the Institute's website. Before joining Fordham, Aldous served as the executive director of School Choice Ohio and has worked at the Florida Department of Education and for the Walton Family Foundation and as a legislative analyst for the Education Committee of the Florida House of Representatives. Unlike Lebo, who holds doctorate degrees in education administration, previously served as executive director of the Iowa Board of Educational Examiners and was a secondary school principal and taught English for 17 years. Aldous has no experience teaching or serving as a school administrator, according to his LinkedIn profile. The governor's office did not immediately respond to a message Wednesday afternoon asking whether that was a factor in the governor's consideration in naming a new director, and how that may affect the ability of a new director to lead the department. 
It's been 30 years since Iowa led the nation in math scores, ranking first among 8th graders and second for 4th graders in 1992, Reynolds said in a statement. In 2022, we ranked above the national average, but Iowa students and families deserve better. By innovating our education system and renewing our focus on academic instruction and performance, I'm confident that Iowa schools and students will again lead the way. A message left with the Iowa State Education Association, Iowa's main public teachers union, seeking comment on Aldous's appointment was not immediately returned Wednesday afternoon. Iowa House Minority Leader Jennifer Confirst, Democrat of Windsor Heights, criticized Reynolds' picks as all about politics. Quote, not only has the governor's new appointee never worked or taught in a public school, he's a lobbyist who has worked for special interest groups that push private school vouchers and ending retirement plans like IPERS, conference said in a statement. Senate Majority Leader Jack Whitver, Republican of Grimes, said he trusts Reynolds' leadership and that the governor made a wise choice to lead the department. From getting kids in school to empowering parents in their children's education, Governor Reynolds has clearly and unmistakably earned the trust of Iowans on education policy, Whitfer said in a statement, adding he looks forward to working with Aldis to implement the laws the legislature passes to make Iowa schools the best in the country. Aldis, in a governor's office news release, said he shares the governor's unwavering commitment to ensuring all children are provided with a quality education that fits their needs. Like many Iowans, I owe much to the great public education I received, he said in the news release. We need to make sure that today's students have the same opportunities to pursue their dreams. That starts with all students leaving high school with the reading, math, and civics knowledge and skills to prepare them for either college or a career. Oh, so sweet by Tiffany owner Tiffany Cannon didn't shout the opening of her new storefront from the rooftops just in case they experienced any problems, but that doesn't mean the bakery and restaurant didn't see a busy grand opening. Cannon opened the business's doors March 7th at 210 East 2nd Street in Davenport, finally at the end of a two-year quest to move from its Main Street unit to a larger space. Plenty of old customers stopped by to see the new place, she said, peering into glass cases filled with treats and playing with the swing seat. It's very scary and very exhilarating, all rolled into one, Cannon said. The business is open from 8 to 6, Tuesday through Saturday, and 8 to 3 on Sundays. Cannon said it took two years to move from the location they'd been in since 2014 on Main Street to the new unit, located in five-story apartment building and retail space, Urbane 210. It was getting too cramped to handle the demand they were experiencing and allow for the events and classes she wanted to begin holding. We had a lot of creative creative ideas that we wanted to do and were not able to do them in that space. And so I started looking for a different space, Cannon said, and we landed on 2nd Street. The Oh So Sweet by Tiffany Menu has expanded to add more breakfast, lunch, bread, and dessert items. Cannon said she wanted the food and treats on the menu to remain light and delicious while still offering products people can find elsewhere in the Quad Cities. This next article now loading... Man accused of setting multiple fires last week charged with drug offenses from Matthew Rezab of the Globe Gazette. A Mason City man arrested February 28th for allegedly setting five fires around town was arrested again on felony drug charges on Tuesday. According to court records, 38-year-old Zachary Bruce Sankey has been charged with two counts of possession of a controlled substance, third or subsequent offense. Each count carries up to five years in prison. 
A statement from Mason City Police Chief Jeff Brinkley said the Mason City Fire and Police Departments responded to numerous fire calls between 5.22 a.m. and 7.15 a.m. February 28th at the following locations. Several are listed throughout Mason City. It is unclear where he was arrested, but Sankey became a suspect after being identified at Brothers Ace Hardware. He has been charged with second-degree arson and third-degree burglary in that case. Sankey posted $10,000 bond Monday with the stipulation he contact the Department of Correctional Services within 24 hours of his release, which he allegedly failed to do, causing the issuance of an arrest warrant. That warrant was served around 4.30 p.m. Tuesday on Beaumont Drive in Mason City. It is unclear if it was at a residence or a traffic stop. Upon searching Sankey's backpack, police found methamphetamine. Sankey is being held on $60,000 bond in the Cerro Gordo County Jail, and a preliminary hearing for the arson and burglary charges is scheduled for March 10th. No court date has been set on the drug charges. Also from Matthew Razab of the Globe Gazette, this article entitled, Disc Golf Tourney Raises Cash, Food for Charity. On Sunday, 41 hardy disc golf enthusiasts put their talents on display in East Park for a good cause, raising almost $3,000 and around 800 pounds of food for the Hawkeye Harvest Food Bank. The golfers were in Mason City to compete in the 8th Annual Ice Bowl Disc Golf Tournament, an international organization started in 1987 by Rick Rothstein in Columbia, Missouri. According to its website, an ice bowl is a disc golf event typically held in winter, with a mission to increase local awareness of disc golf by raising funds for local and regional charities and an emphasis on fighting food insecurity. Many ice bowls emphasize fun over competition while burnishing a positive image for disc golf. Raising funds for charity was added as a significant component of ice bowl in 1996. Since then, more than $5.96 million has been raised, including over $550,000 in 2021. The event wasn't injury-free. One organizer, Bill Orozco, injured his arm the day before the tournament when he fell while shoveling and sanding the tee boxes. Quote, their main thing was being serious and competitive, Orozco said, but they really couldn't in the winter with the ice and snow. So they decided if we can't do it as seriously, we want to choose to alleviate hunger. Competitors were required to pay a $25 entry fee and donate at least 10 cans of food to compete. The entry fee money was split three ways. The first $10 went directly to the food bank, another $10 went for prize money, and the final $5 was used for an ace pot for any golfer or golfers who scored a hole-in-one. Because nobody scored a hole-in-one, every participant was given a throw at a basket 100 feet away, with the three closest throws winning the money. According to the Mason City event, Flyer, $2,075 and 235 pounds of food were raised in 2020, $2,600 and 634 pounds in 2021, and $3,195 and 893 pounds last year. Another organizer, Harley Francis, said one competitor donated 170 cans of food. Other organizers included Dan Stevenson and Adam Karstens. All the organizers hope for another successful event next year as well. A Clear Lake woman faces more than 10 years in prison after allegedly assaulting a minor Sunday. According to court records, 40-year-old Carrie Lee Young has been charged with child endangerment, serious injury, and assault on persons in certain occupations. The affidavit states that at approximately 10.13 a.m., 
At a residence in Ventura, in Ventura, Young choked the alleged victim, and a little more than an hour later, she choked the victim again and struck her in the face multiple times, causing injury. Young also allegedly kicked a healthcare provider in the chest later that afternoon. The victim stated that she was having difficulty breathing and was transported to the hospital. From Aaron Murphy and Caleb McCullough Lee of the Gazette Des Moines Bureau, this article entitled GOP Lawmakers Pass Ban on Gender-Affirming Care for Minors. From Des Moines, a proposed ban on gender-affirming care for minors in Iowa is on its way to Governor Kim Reynolds' desk. Republican state lawmakers passed the ban and other LGBTQ bills over the past two days, putting them en route to Reynolds on Wednesday. Reynolds' office did not immediately respond Wednesday when asked whether she plans to sign the bill into law once it reaches her. Thousands of Iowans have publicly protested this bill and others that have been moving through the Iowa legislature over the past week. Students at dozens of schools across the state walked out of classes and hundreds attended two rallies at the Iowa Capitol this past week on Sunday and again on Wednesday. If the bill is signed into law, it likely will be at least temporarily halted by a legal challenge. Similar bills in other states are being challenged in the courts, including Arkansas, Alabama, Tennessee, and Texas. Republican legislators who have proposed and advanced the ban on gender-affirming care say it is necessary to protect children from medical care and treatments when the science is not settled, even though all major medical groups in the U.S. say the treatments are safe and the vast majority of studies show that the care leads to better mental health outcomes. During debate Wednesday, Representative Steve Holt, Republican of Denison, who oversaw the bill's movement in the Iowa House, pointed to studies in Europe, including one that says more study is needed on the long-term effects of gender-affirming care. The study says there is some evidence that individuals who have sex reassignment have considerably higher risks for mortality, suicidal behavior, and psychiatric morbidity than the general population. Quote, our children deserve the time to grow into themselves, to find themselves, to go through phases without medical interventions that are unproven in their efficacy, Holt said. It is for these reasons that I believe we should wait on these life-altering procedures and therapies for children until they are adults. During debate in the Iowa Senate on Tuesday, Senator Jeff Edler, Republican of State Center, who oversaw the bill's movement in that chamber, pointed to a study that he said illustrates his concern for the long-term impacts of hormonal treatment. The 2018 study, which can be found on the American Academy of Pediatrics website, says the long-term side effects of hormonal treatment could include bone density loss and also says more research is needed on those long-term impacts. However, it also concludes the treatments benefit the patients and are generally safe. Republican Representative Jeff Shipley pointed to the guidance from the World Professional Association for Transgender Health, which says the number of studies is still low and there are few outcome studies that follow youth into adulthood. Still, those guidelines recommend puberty blockers and hormone treatment in adolescents with gender dysphoria who meet certain conditions, and the organization vehemently opposes bills like the one passed by Iowa Republicans. Representative Austin Baith, Democrat of Des Moines, who is a physician, noted the preponderance of evidence, continues to show that while the treatments can sometimes come with side effects, that they are safe and that studies and physicians that cast doubt on the treatment safety are outliers. Quote, it takes lots of physicians to come together, looking at all the studies, not cherry-picking them to support an agenda, Baith said, but looking at the mountain of evidence, the preponderance of evidence, and deciding what is the most likely answer to this question.
The bill would ban doctors in the state from providing puberty blockers, hormones, and surgeries to minors under age 18 to treat gender dysphoria. Doctors who violate the bill would be subject to discipline from a state licensing board, and individuals could bring lawsuits against doctors who perform gender-affirming care. Minors who are receiving medical treatment now would have 180 days to discontinue that care. Brian Lowe's, Republican from Vaudrant, who was one of five House Republicans voting against the bill, said the bill runs counter to the parental choice mantra, Republicans' frequent champion. The doctors who testified to lawmakers in February said puberty blockers, medications that stop the onset of puberty, are reversible, while the effects of hormone treatment are mostly reversible. Surgery, which generally means breast reduction, is not reversible. Doctors also told told lawmakers that gender-affirming care is a practice that occurs after months of careful evaluation from multiple doctors and that parental consent is always involved. Democrats said the bill is a rash reaction to concerns over the efficacy of the care, noting all major medical organizations in the U.S. support interventions for youth with persistent gender dysphoria. The American Medical Association, the American Academy of Pediatrics, and the American Psychiatric Association all include gender-affirming care for youth in their guidelines. As lawmakers deliberated the bills, a couple of hundred people gathered in the Capitol's first floor rotunda to protest the measure they said would harm LGBTQ youth and strip them of their rights. Joe Allen, a photographer from Des Moines, who is non-binary, said it is difficult to live in Iowa, given the legislation under consideration. A few speakers at the rally said they are considering leaving the state over the proposals. Quote, anti-trans bills have nothing to do about privacy, but focused on expelling trans folks from public life, Allen said. We are not going anywhere, and despite the bills that you put out against us, we will continue to be our most authentic trans selves. Just north of Iowa on Wednesday, Minnesota Governor Tim Waltz, a Democrat, signed an executive order that protects trans people, families, and care providers from a range of legal repercussions for traveling to Minnesota for gender-affirming care, the Associated Press reported. Waltz announced his signing on social media, saying in the post, My message is clear. Here in Minnesota, our LGBTQ neighbors will not be denied or punished for seeking life-affirming and life-saving medical care. The Senate late Tuesday also passed a bill that would prohibit transgender students from using school bathrooms that correspond with their gender identity. State Republicans described the proposal as common sense and a way to ensure the privacy and safety of all Iowa students. Data overwhelmingly shows that incidents of sexual assault in school bathrooms are rare and that transgender individuals are far more likely to be victims of sexual assault than non-transgender people, including at schools with prescriptive bathroom policies. The House was scheduled to debate and is expected to pass legislation late Wednesday that would prohibit schools from teaching topics like gender identity and sexual orientation through the sixth grade. Iowa schools would have fewer requirements on what they teach and how they provide instruction under a bill the Iowa Senate passed Tuesday. Senate File 391, proposed by Republican Governor Kim Reynolds, removes a list of requirements on Iowa's public schools. Under the bill, schools would no longer be required to report a comprehensive improvement plan to the state. Schools could hire a person previously employed as a public librarian to be a school librarian rather than a certified teacher librarian. No more than five days or 30 hours of instruction could be delivered online. Community college instructors would be able to teach more classes at the high school level. Schools would be able to teach multiple sequential units of a subject in the same classroom. 
Requirements around financial literacy instruction, instruction regarding HIV and AIDS, and world languages would be removed. Democrats put up amendments to reinstate certain requirements the bill removed, including the requirement that schools employ certified teacher librarians and offer four units of world languages, but they were voted down. The bill passed along party lines, 33 to 16, with one senator not voting. It will need to pass in the House before heading to Governor Kim Reynolds' desk for a signature. Rebuffing arguments from Democrats that the bill would weaken the standards at Iowa schools, Senator Tim Cranbrink, Republican Fort Dodge, said schools would still have the option to offer all the classes they do now, but they would have more flexibility to offer the instruction they can best accommodate. This bill gives more local control to school districts and school boards in their requirements by allowing them flexibility within courses and offerings so that they are better able to structure class time based on their local situations and needs, Cranbink said. But, Democrats said, the bill would result in a dumbing down of Iowa's education system by requiring fewer options to be offered to students and reducing opportunities. Senator Herman Kornbach A Democrat from Ames said the bill would result in cuts to school services. Flexibility is a euphemism here, he said. Flexibility, what it really translates to, is a permission to cut. And with that, we'll go ahead and we'll move to our obituaries. Artist Valois Beyer, formerly Paulsdorfer, 93, of Mason City, passed away March 7th at Good Shepherd Health Center in Mason City. A funeral service will be held 1030 Monday, March 13th, at First United Methodist Church, 119 South Georgia Avenue in Mason City. Burial will take place at Amsterdam Cemetery in Goodell, Iowa. Visitation will be from 5 to 7 p.m. Sunday, March 12th, at Hogan Bremer Moore Colonial Chapel. Artist was born March 11th, 1929, in Swaledale, Iowa, daughter of Arthur and Ella Polsdolfer. She graduated from high school in Clemmy, Iowa, Artist met and married the love of her life, Glenn Byer, July 27, 1947, at the Little Brown Church in Nashua, Iowa. She loved to travel and work with her hands. She also spent a lot of time working with the church. Artist loved being with her family and enjoyed many flowers. She never met a stranger and left every encounter with a new friend. Artist especially enjoyed her time living at the manor where she made numerous friends. She was a member of the First United Methodist Church in Mason City as well as the Hospitality Group. Artist is survived by her son. I'm sorry, the page just stopped loading. Uh, So I'll skip here to the end. Artist was preceded in death by her husband, Glenn, son Ronald Byer, grandson Josh Byer, parents Arthur and Ella, and 12 siblings. Hogan Bremer Moore Colonial Chapel, 641-423-2. 372. From Iowa City, Alberta May Code, known as May, 91 of Iowa City, died Sunday, March 5th at the Oak Knoll Retirement Community. May was born on August 1st, 1931 in Mason City, the daughter of Harry and Mildred Percy. She was married on February 20th, 1954 to Joseph Code. May graduated from Mason City High School and then the University of Iowa with a BS degree in education. She belonged to Alpha Chi Omega Sorority when attending Iowa. She taught high school business classes such as typing and shorthand at City High School in Iowa City until 1958. After her two sons graduated from college, May began the wedding party and tuck shop in Iowa City, where she sold wedding dresses, bridal dresses, and tuxedos for 20 years. 
She was a member of the Iowa City chapter of PEO Chapter VF for over 60 years and attended United Methodist Church, then Parkview Church in Iowa City and North Naples Methodist Church in Naples, Florida. Joe and May were both active in dance club for over 30 years. They loved to travel and visited all 50 states with their boys on road trips in their Grand Safari station wagons. They were avid Hawkeye fans and had season tickets for the men's basketball games for years. May, most of all, enjoyed her family and spent many of her later years enjoying her four grandchildren and four great-grandchildren. May is survived by her two sons, Andrew Code and his wife, Susan of Naples, Florida, and Kevin Code and his wife, Brenda O'Brien of Naples. For grandchildren... For great-grandchildren, her sister, and many nephews and nieces. May was preceded in death by her parents, her husband Joe of 48 years, her sister Wanda Smiley, and three brothers-in-law, Larry Smiley, Keith Byington, and Glenn Trustum. A private memorial service will be held later this spring for the immediate family. In lieu of flowers, memorials may be made to House into Homes, 401 6th Avenue in Coralville, 52241. Dr. George Daskalos, 91, passed away on March 3rd in Florida of complications from pneumonia. George was born November 28, 1931, in Mason City, to Helen, formerly Papa John Daskalos, and John Daskalos. George graduated from Mason City High School and attended NIAC before continuing his education at the University of Iowa, where there he earned a degree earned a degree in dentistry. He then joined the U.S. Army and was stationed in Karlsruhe, Germany, where he served as captain in the Dental Corps. After leaving the Army, he attended Columbia University in New York City, where he completed his orthodontic residency. He then returned to his hometown of Mason City to open an orthodontic practice. He loved his profession and said there was never a day that he didn't enjoy going to the office. In 1968, George married Susan Hench and recently celebrated 55 wonderful years together. They raised three children, Penelope, John, and Georgiana. George loved bicycling and was a participant in RAGBRAI for many years. He enjoyed playing handball at the YMCA during his lunch hours with friends and colleagues. After retiring, George and Susan spent their winters in Navarre, Florida, where they developed wonderful friendships. George was a wonderful husband, father, grandfather, and friend. He was loved by many and known for his sweet smile and kind words. He will be greatly missed. He was preceded in death by an infant daughter, Angela Daskalos, parents John and Helen Daskalos, and brother Dr. Frank Daskalos, sister-in-law Sue Daskalos, and infant nephew and in-laws Jim and Patricia Hench. He is survived by wife Susan, children Penelope Daskalos, John Daskalos, Georgiana Rasmussen, grandchildren, and many nieces and nephews. A funeral service is planned for Saturday, March 11th at 10 a.m. at the Holy Transfiguration Greek Orthodox Church, 1311 2nd Street Southwest in Mason City, followed by a burial service and then luncheon at the Prime and Wine. A Trisagian service will begin at 5 p.m. on Friday, March 10th at Hogan Bremer Moore Colonial Chapel, 126 3rd Street, Northeast Mason City. Visitation will be held on Friday, March 10th from 5 to 7 p.m. at Hogan Bremer Moore Colonial Chapel, 126 3rd Street Northeast. Memorial contributions may be made to the Holy Transfiguration Greek Orthodox Church or the YMCA of Mason City. Vincent P. Weber, 103 of Osage, passed away Saturday, March 4th at Faith 
Lutheran Home in Osage. A funeral mass will be held 11 a.m. Friday, March 10th at the Sacred Heart Catholic Church in Osage with Father Raymond Burkle officiating. Burial will be held in Sacred Heart Cemetery in Osage. Vincent was born November 7th, 1919, near Little Cedar, the son of Isidore and Catherine Weber. He was the second of 11 siblings. He was drafted into the Army in May of 1942, where he served as an X-ray technician until his discharge. Vince was later employed by Oliver White Farm Equipment Company for 34 years as a design engineer. He enjoyed his work, which involved working with transmission gearing. Vince retired as senior project engineer. He participated in several activities, including joining a flying club and learning to fly airplanes. Vince enjoyed fishing and playing golf at Sunnybrae Golf Club, where he was a member of 51 years. He was a member of Sacred Heart Catholic Church and a member of the Osage American Legion Post, number 278. Vince is survived by his brother, Jim, Weber, and sister, Mary McIntyre, both of Osage, and many nieces and nephews. He is preceded in death by his parents and eight siblings. Gene Fisher, 101 of Cedar Falls, died on Wednesday, February 22nd, at the Deary Suites Western Home in Cedar Falls. She was born on August 6th, 1921, in Coulter, Iowa, the daughter of John and Edna Nielsen Hansen. She graduated from Latimer High School. Jean married Charles Bud Fisher July 15, 1945, at the Nazareth Lutheran Church in Coulter, Iowa. She worked at Country Classics Store and owned the Fisher Grocery Store with her husband Bud from the 1950s through the early 1960s. She was a member of Nathrin Lutheran Church in Coulter, then St. John Lutheran Church. She was in the Park Society of Latimer, Ladies Aid Through Church, the American Legion Auxiliary, and the Latimer Golf Club. Jean loved to golf, play bridge, and chicken foot, and visiting friends and family. Jean is survived by son Charles Fisher of Waterloo, daughter Connie, grandsons, granddaughters. Jean is preceded in death by her parents, husband Bud, granddaughter Alexandra Crawford, and brother and sister-in-law John and Marlis Hansen, sister Donna Martin, and nephew Scott Martin. Family memorial service will be held at a later date. Locke at Tower Park is in charge of arrangements. Consolences may be left at www.lockfuneralservices.com. And our final obituary for today. Justin Shiremeister, 51, passed away on Wednesday, February 15th at Israel Hospice House in Ames, Iowa. A memorial service will be held on March 11th at St. James Lutheran Church, 1148 4th Street, Southeast Mason City. Visitation 10 to 11 a.m., service at 11, and a luncheon to follow. And with that, we'll move on to sports. In sports college women's basketball, Clear Lake Sarah Faber has Wartburg College in the Sweet 16. From Waverly, Wartburg College women's basketball coach Bob Amsbury admits Sarah Faber should have been a starter last winter for the Knights. The Clear Lake native clearly was one of the most talented players on Wartburg's roster. But in the grand scheme of things, and what benefited the Knights most during a 21-6 season that ended in the NCAA Division III tournament was using Faber as a spark plug off the bench. Probably could have, should have started last year, Amsbury said. And despite coming off the bench in 26 of the Knights' 27 games in 21-22, Faber finished as the team's second leading scorer at 10.8 points a game, and led the team in steals while earning second-team All-American Rivers Conference honors. It was all good, Faber said, of being the best sixth player in the ARC last year. It was kind of what is best for the team. 
Faber added she gained a better appreciation of the impact a bench player can make in a game and on a team, and that impact can be the same as the influence a starter provides. The knowledge carried over into Faber's junior season, and she has been phenomenal for the 24th-ranked Knights, 23-6, and six, who will be appearing in their 6th Division III Sweet 16 Friday when it plays at 4 p.m. against number 1 Christopher Newport in Medford, Massachusetts at Tufts University. In 29 starts, Faber averaged 13.9 points a game while finishing in the top 10 in the ARC in five different categories and earning League Most Valuable Player of the Year honors. She's had a great year, Amsbury said. We rely on her a lot. She's a playmaker who makes plays at both ends of the floor. When it is late in the game, we want the ball in her hands. She stays level-headed at all times and just has big been big for us. In her third season as regular rotation player for Wartburg, Faber says her game has evolved a lot, in particular in how to work better on the floor with her teammates. How and when do we get the ball into the right player's hands, Faber said. Understanding when my teammates need the ball in their hands compared to when I need to look for my shots. When do I need to get the ball to them so they can get their shots? It is that kind of thinking that has propelled Wartburg into the Sweet 16 and propelled the Knights to topping defending national champion Hope College last week in the second round of the NCAA tournament. Favors', Favors ball distribution was critical in the win at Hope. As time after time Wartburg found open teammates in a game, the Knights had six players make at least one three-pointer and saw the team go 14 for 24 from behind the arc. It will take that kind of performance Friday when Wartburg makes its fifth Sweet 16 appearance since 2016 as it seeks the Knights' fifth Elite Eight trip in that same time span. It's been a fun year, Faber said. I came here to make memories, and we are clearly doing that. We've been checking a lot of boxes off our list all year. In Christopher Newport, 28-0, Wartburg is facing a team Amsbury feels the Knights are most prepared to play. They are different than Hope, Amsbury said. They want to press. We'll show several different presses. They score a lot, and they want to get out and go. It is going to be a really good matchup. We are built to play fast. Our ability to play any tempo we want has really been important for our success. A victory Friday would put Wartburg against either Trinity or Tufts Saturday in 6.30 Central game with a Final Four trip on the line. We got to continue to stay level-headed, stay confident, and stay true to who we are, Faber said. Understand we are really good players, and we just need to play together. The next article here, loading. Uh, I believe this is some high school boys basketball. Clear Lake claims the NCC postseason award. The North Central Conference released its all-league boys team Wednesday afternoon, and four Clear Lake athletes earned recognition. Senior Trayvon Luya Boya was one of two unanimous first-team selections. Webster City senior Jamie Gossam was the other player to earn the distinction. Loya averaged nearly 18 points and 9.5 assists per game this season. He led the Lions in both categories. Sophomore Thomas Meyer joined Loya on the all-conference first team. He put up 14.6 points and 7.2 rebounds per contest. Junior Kale Stephanie and sophomore Titan Schmidt made the second and third teams, respectively. Stephanie put up 11.2 points a game, and Schmidt wasn't far behind, scoring 9.6 an outing. Stephanie Schmidt, Meyer, and Loyobia efforts helped Clear Lake finish the season with 22-2 overall and 13-1 conference records. The Lions rose as high as number two in the AP poll and made it to a sub-state finals game this year. 
Clear Lake fell to North Polk 52-43 in the IHSAA Class 3A Substate 3 Championship game on February 27th at Ames High School. Hampton-Dumont Cal's Scott Haar also made the NCC's first team. He racked up about 24 points and 13 rebounds per game. The Bulldogs placed fifth in the NCC this year with a 7-15 overall and 4-10 in conference records. To some high school track and field... Mason City wins the 4x400-meter at Dickinson's Relays. The Mason City boys' track team had a solid outing at the A.D. Dickinson Relays in Cedar Falls Tuesday. The Riverhawks' 4x400-meter relay team claimed gold with a 3.26.15 time. Mason City edged the likes of Linmar, Central DeWitt, and Iowa City High. The Riverhawks finished nearly three full seconds ahead of second-place Des Moines Valley High School. Cale Hobart, Caden Tyler, Rashawn Winter, and James Finkelson made up Mason City's 4x400 team. The group's first place finish was the highlight of an impressive day for Hobart, who is currently committed to Central College's football and men's track teams. Hobart placed third in the 60-meter hurdles, running the event in 8.5 seconds. He was about three hundredths of a second away from first place. The senior also placed in the top 10 in high jump, registering a peak height of 1.83 meters. Counting the 4x400-meter relay, Hobart recorded three top 10 finishes, against a field that featured well over 50 athletes in some events. Mason City's 4x800-meter relay team, which does not include Hobart, placed fourth on the University of Northern Iowa's campus. Singleson, Tyler, Winter, and Tate Millsap posted an 8.27.70 time. A few athletes from Clear Lake also put together some solid individual performances at the Dickinson Relays. Senior Zeke Nelson was ninth in the 60-meter hurdles, posting an 8.6-second time. He finished about two hundredths of a second behind Hobart in the event. In the 800-meter dash, senior Marcus Skidmore recorded a 2.07.09 time. The mark was good for 12th place in the event. Both Clear Lake and Mason City will compete in the IATC Indoor Championship on Friday in Ames. The Riverhawks and Lions will participate in the 4A and 3A divisions, respectively. And high school girls track. Reese Brownlee picks up win in the 200-meter at the Dickinson Relays. Clear Lake's Reese Brownlee kicked off the 2023 <clears throat> track season with a bang Monday. She won the girls' 200-meter dash at the A.D. Dickinson Relays in Cedar Falls. Brownlee posted a 26.57-second time. She beat Southeast Polk's Alexis Board by a tenth of a second. Brownlee's teammate, Addison Dawn, also recorded a top-10 finish. Dawn placed seventh in the 1,500-meter with 4.59.44 time. Dawn also helped Clear Lake's 4x400-meter relay team finish 16th. Lauren England, Anna Feuerbach, Rebecca Steinbraun, and Dawn finished the event in 4.29.90. The Lions 4x800-meter relay squad, which features Feuerbach, Steinbraun, England, and Emily McLaughlin, placed 15th with a 10.43.83 time. Bay City didn't finish far behind Clear Lake in the 4x800-meter relay. Brogan, Evans, Aspen, Cole, Olivia Schittel, and Janae Hansen ran the race in 10.55.03. Evans, who was a freshman, ran a 2.32 split in the event. She had no previous experiences leading off a high school race prior to Monday. Mason City's Addison Evans, Elia Lewerke, and Gwen Pfizer all posted career best on UNI's campus. Evans threw as far as 31 feet, 2 inches in the shot put. Pfizer and Lewerke finished the 60-meter hurdles in 10.40 and 10.44 seconds, respectively. Evans, Lewerke, and Pfizer place 37th, 34th, and 36th in their respective events. For the first meet of the season, 
we were really focusing on a few things, Mason City head coach Jim Lee wrote in an email to the Globe Gazette. As always, we wanted the girls to compete to the best of their ability, but we wanted them to do the little things that can make a big difference, such as remembering to warm up properly, setting their blocks the correct way, focusing on starting their race correctly, whether they are a sprinter, hurdler, or distance runner. High school boys wrestling, Osage rakes in top of Iowa conference honors. The 2023 Top of Iowa Conference Boys Wrestling Tournament was canceled because of wintry weather conditions. Because the event wasn't held, TIC coaches voted for all conference teams this season. Osage raked in more honors than any other school in the league. The Green Devils had eight wrestlers earn first-team recognition. Cole Jeffries, a 195-pounder, made the all-conference second team. Osage's Brent Jennings was named Conference Coach of the Year. He led his team to traditional and dual state titles in February. Three of his athletes won individual state championships this year. 120-pounder Blake Fox, 170-pounder Nick Fox, and 145-pounder Tucker Stengel. Nick Fox was named Top of Iowa Conference Wrestler of the Year. He beat Bishop Helan's Ethan DeLeon via 3-1 decision in the state finals to finish the year with a 53-2 record. Fox is now a two-time state champion. He'll wrestle for the University of Iowa next year. Stengel won his first state title this year. He beat Sergeant Bluff Luton's Ty Cotum via 7-6 decision in the finals. Stengel was a junior this season, and he'll be back at Osage next year. Blake Fox, who was a freshman, is 1-for-1 one one in state final matches now. He downed Glenwood's Vinnie Mayberry by 8-2 decision at Wells Fargo Arena in Des Moines to claim his first title. Osage's Anders Kittleson, Chase Thomas, Max Gass, Barrett Muller, and Mac Muller also made the TIC first team. All five wrestlers stood on the awards stand at the state tournament. Kittleson and Thomas finished second and third, respectively. Green County's Kale Peterson beat Kittleson 7-3 in the state finals this year. Barrett Muller had a shot to make the finals, but he suffered an injury during the semis. He was forced out of the rest of the tournament, forfeiting his way to a fifth-place finish. Mac Muller and Gast both finished fourth at state. Gast and Mac Muller lost their third-place matches by decision. State place winners from Central Springs, Forest City Mills, and West Hancock also earned all-conference first-team honors. The Smiths uh, placed second in state. Moore and Oldenkamp each finished third in their respective brackets. With that, we'll go and help, and we'll finish up today with our weather for today, March 9th. Uh, Weather update for Iowa and western Illinois. Today, cloudy with snow, temps. Nearly steady in the mid-30s, winds east at 10 to 20 miles an hour, chance of snow 100%, snow accumulating 3 to 5 inches. Tonight, cloudy with snow showers, mainly during the evening, low of 24 degrees, winds north to northeast at 5 to 10 miles an hour, chance of snow 80%, snow accumulations less than 1 inch. Tomorrow, cloudy skies, high of 32 degrees, winds north at 5 to 10 miles an hour. And that'll do it for today, March the 9th, 2023. This has been the reading of the Mason City Globe Gazette, and I've been your reader, Ben Stein, and I'll look forward to doing the reading again next week. Until then, have a great week. Thank you.
in the People's Pharmacy Health Headlines. With half a dozen measles outbreaks currently underway in the U.S., as well as several serious international outbreaks, the news on measles vaccine from Denmark is important. Researchers conducted a nationwide study that included everyone born between 1999 and 2010. With more than 650,000 children in that group, they had more than 5 million person years of follow-up. The Danish health system keeps excellent records on all of its citizens, including the children. Consequently, the scientists are confident that the 6,517 children diagnosed with autism during the study period are all the children who developed this condition. Children who did not receive the measles, mumps, rubella vaccine, or MMR, were equally likely as vaccinated children to develop autism. The investigators conclude, the study strongly supports that MMR vaccination does not increase the risk for autism, does not trigger autism in susceptible children, and is not associated with clustering of autism cases after vaccination. The Food and Drug Administration has just approved a completely new type of antidepressant, The nasal spray, called esketamine, is expected to help people who have not responded to standard antidepressants. It will be marketed under the brand name Spravato. This drug is chemically related to the injectable anesthetic ketamine that's been on the market since 1970 and is available generically. Although esketamine is administered as a nasal spray, people will not be permitted to purchase it for home use. They will need to use Spravato under medical supervision at a clinic or doctor's office. Some experts have challenged the FDA's approval process for esketamine. While two clinical trials demonstrated some benefit, two others did not show that esketamine is better than placebo. Side effects of this novel antidepressant include nausea, dizziness, headache, and a feeling of dissociation. FDA Commissioner Dr. Scott Gottlieb unexpectedly announced his departure from the agency this week. Experts were puzzled by his announcement since he has received high marks from the administration, industry, and even some consumer groups. Dr. Gottlieb has raised questions about teen vaping and has been an outspoken critic of pharmacy chains that sell tobacco products to minors. Some commentators speculate that these stances might be related to his abrupt departure. His explanation for the sudden departure is that he wants to spend more time with his wife and young children. Dr. Gottlieb is a survivor of Hodgkin's lymphoma. Another week, another drug recall. Many lots of ARB blood pressure drugs, including Losartan, Valsartan, and Herbisartan, have been recalled over the past eight months. These medicines were contaminated with potential carcinogens known as NDMA and NDEA. Now, Heterolabs has recalled 87 lots, and Tarrant Pharmaceuticals Limited is recalling 100 lots of Losartan tablets. These pills contain an entirely new contaminant just identified as NMBA. It, too, is a suspected carcinogen. All three of these nitrosamine contaminants are apparently created as a result of the manufacturing process. FDA Commissioner Gottlieb stated, We're making important strides at understanding how these impurities form 
and we're continuing to examine if nitrosamine impurities may also arise during the manufacture of other ARB drug products. The FDA is committed to implementing measures to prevent the formation of these impurities during drug manufacturing processes in the future. Cocoa flavonoids may have some benefit for people with multiple sclerosis, according to a small study. Previous research showed that dark chocolate rich in cocoa compounds might improve symptoms of chronic fatigue. The investigators recruited 40 people with relapsing remitting MS to drink cocoa every day for six weeks. 19 of them got high flavonoid cocoa, while 21 drank low flavonoid cocoa. At the end of the study, those on the high flavonoid cocoa had slightly less fatigue and could walk somewhat farther in six minutes than they had at the outset. They also reported less pain. And that's the health news from the People's Pharmacy this week. 